0: Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, Counterspin, Mother Jones Radio, and The Young Turks.
1: Our first guests are our newest compatriots on Air America Radio, Jink Uger, Ben Mankiewicz, and Jill Pike. They call themselves the Young Turks, and you can hear them live 6 to 9 Eastern every day. And watch the video webcast of their show anytime at youngturks.com. These people are superstars. Let's talk about the rise of the new citizens' media, the new media that that really is outpacing what we'd consider uh, organized monopoly media, the conglomerate media that really hasn't given us much good news in the past. The three of you are all over that, aren't you? I mean, you're building something that really does step in the shoes of citizens' media.
2: We're trying, that's for sure, Mike. Uh, We did this uh, program initially four and a half years ago when there wasn't... Uh, any liberal voice out there and we thought that there was a need for it and so we started to build it. Uh, and,
3: and let me just say, by the way, there weren't a lot of citizens involved at that point. <laughs> we, were, we were doing it from Jenks' living room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, uh, that's, where, that's where we started. And we, you know, we built uh, the satellite show, and then we wound up actually building the Internet show. And every step of the way, we thought, well, if somebody isn't doing it,
1: we should. Well, talk about the Internet show. I think the important thing that most of my listeners understand is that this, the advent of citizens' media is because, if you think about it, 1980, what were there, 50 media outlets... Those 50 media outlets controlled magazines, newspapers, radios, virtually everything. Now we have five conglomerate media organizations doing all that. So I think what's happened is this void has developed. I call it a hole in the market. And I think you were some of the first people to recognize that and say, how can we turn that around and bring the news to people, real news? Tell us how that started
4: it was necessarily that we recognized that there was a void. Um, we just had so many doors slammed in our face, but we had a lot to say, and the Internet was really the only place where we had a free form to do, say, and act how we pleased.
2: Well, you see, it, it happened in two stages. In the beginning, we go to the program directors on radio, and we say, oh, we'd like to do this show, and they say, oh, no, 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 we only do conservative shows. So it would break <laughs> up our uh, programming to put a uh, liberal show on, God forbid. There's door one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we got past that with with satellite radio who was willing to give it a shot. And then when it got to television, again, a 100 conservative talk shows, not one liberal. And so uh, we thought, well, if they're not going to let us on to do this thing, uh, as our callers kept saying on the radio show, well, why don't you just do it on your own, put some cameras in the studio, and let's get it rolling. And we thought... And there's a smart idea, and and we started building it, and uh, slowly we got a better and better set. Mm-hmm. And on the youngturks.com, and we wound up having a real... TV show on the Internet, and we did it through the advice of our listeners.
1: I think whether you did that with a plan or not, it came together, I think, just on the natural force of the market. There was a time when the the neocons got together and said, we have to take control of the American media. You had Richard Mellon Scaife, the Coors family that way back in the 70s understood that if they were going to launch their new brand of politics, where we're going to deregulate the country, where we were going to uh, sell them on the idea of maybe it's okay to give tax breaks to large corporations, it's okay to engage in preemptive war, that they had a plan, and they started building their infrastructure around that. And I I wonder, do you think that we're still in the game of being able to do that ourselves?
2: Well, you know, Mike, I think it's different for us. They had a top-down plan, whereas we we have a bottom-up plan. Um, Ours is more organic. It's not like we got together in a room and the Young Turks and George Soros and whoever else sat down and said, okay, now let's match what the Republican donors have done. In our case, we just built it from the ground up, and we did it with very little money in the beginning with a couple people we know pitching in, etc., and like Ben said, we started out of my living room. So it was just something that made sense and that there was just an absolute need for in the country. That's why people responded to it. And that's what makes us so different from the Republicans who said, here's a whole ton of money, and we're just going to create things that people either have a need or don't have a need, but we're going to force it down their throat. Here it was the people call, asking for it, and, and that's how it
3: sprung Mike, up. Mike, we only meet with George Soros like once or twice a week. I, mean, that's...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could meet with him. You know, here's the, here's the crazy thing. The story that you just gave, we've kind of experienced uh, you know, for a long time with Air America, too, and that is you would think that progressives would understand the value of trying to accomplish what you have done, what you've done on your own energy. Uh, we've watched as Air America has grown, it's, it's almost like the light hasn't gone on that without an infrastructure to deliver progressive messages, they're never going to get it. I mean, you, you know, you're going to have Fox News, you're going to have ABC, NBC, CBS, all conglomerate media, all controlled by corporate America, and it's never going to exist. And I don't know, when you were trying to build what you built, did you find progressives still incapable of kind of grasping that?
3: Yeah, I think the answer to that is almost certainly yes. As always with progressives, with Democrats, there was a great deal of wonderful talk. Like, Mm -hmm. oh no, we got that network. We got to build the infrastructure. It's going to be great. Yeah, and and we're going to get to that thirtieth on our list of things to do. So,
2: Mike, I'll be more frank with you. You know, everybody was always encouraging in words. But we never got a dime. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, nobody ever stepped in and said, hey, listen, you're doing something people are really responding to. It's great, and it's taken off. So here's some help uh, that could help you up. You know, I thought people, uh, progressives, were supposed to believe in a hand up. Uh, you know, look. I'm not bitter about it. We got to where we are anyway. And what I love is that real progressives, people who actually listen to the show, uh, wound up helping the show a lot. And that's what did it for us. And that was a lot more important than any big donor we would have gotten. But, you know, as a structural question, the structural question you're asking is, no, we never really received any financial assistance.
4: I honestly believe the fact that we didn't get any financial assistance and a lot of help along the way, I mean, it kind of helped mold the show into our, into our own vision, which is a little different than... You know, we have a vision? We do. I, I mean, I think we're a little different than a lot of the shows out there, and it's, it's because we have been our own boss this entire time, these four years. Nobody has controlled us whatsoever. And so I think it's molded itself into a really special unique show.
1: Well, you, if you look at where people get the news, I, I, it, it's amazing to me. The, the last statistics I saw, you had more than 40% of the American public that don't trust mainstream media. Uh, you had another 30 percent that say that they have abandoned what used to be their source of news because they don't trust that news anymore. And and, and they're going going to the Internet. They're going to exactly what you are building by your, I guess they call it vlogging. What what is it that you're doing Internet-wise?
2: Well, there's two different things that we're doing on the internet. One is that we carry the show, uh, a video version of the show, so it's basically exactly like TV on, on the internet. You go to the website and it's embedded in the site, so you see it immediately. And we're replaying the, sh- the live show. Uh, tw- 24 hours a day so that whenever you tune in you could always catch the show and then the second part of it is that we're uh, putting up clips from the show in the form of a blog so uh, once you get past the big TV in the in the top of the site then you'll see all the little clips we have and some things are actually written articles and others are clips from the show that you could watch whether they're interviews or funny or interesting different clips and then third of all and this is how they helped us our listeners helped us grow the show when we needed the financial help to carry us forward. What we do is we do members-only segments where members join up, pay us a small fee, help support the show, and we give them extra video. Uh, we'll we'll do extra segments, extra for content, them, yeah, mm-hmm. extra content mm-hmm. for them, and they get something that they like, and we get uh, something that helps the show. We do that all through theyoungturks.com.
5: A radio For every time you
4: loved me so I wouldn't have A radio at all Now I sit And waste my
3: time My room is quiet as a mime And wait for someone Glamorous to call
5: You made a
3: plan then told me you had plans and couldn’t go The hurricane will wreck my bed and leave my shingle room for
6: dead. It isn’t very often that someone goes from being a dedicated critic to working within the very business they’ve spent years exposing and often assailing. That weird tale is just what happened to Fair’s founder, Jeff Cohen. After an earlier run at becoming one of the very few co-hosts truly on the left on CNN's debate show, Crossfire, in 1997, Jeff began spending more time in the belly of the beast, going to work first at a little fledgling cable network called Fox and moving later to MSNBC. The close-up, behind-the-scenes look at corporate media making may not have made for a wholly rewarding life experience, but it did make for the new book, Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media. Joining us now in studio to discuss the book and some of the stories behind it is author, activist, and longtime media critic, Jeff Cohen. Welcome back to Counterspan, Jeff Cohen. Great to be with you. We hear a lot of reasons for the exclusion of true progressives from corporate news media, even from the debate shows where one would expect to find them. Sometimes they say they can't find any. Other times they say leftists aren't forceful enough. You tested those excuses when you were tested for CNN's Crossfire. What did that experience teach you about the real rules of TV debate?
7: Well, it was an eye opener. I mean, I was not naive when I started talking to these news executives at CNN and ABC and PBS in the 1980s. But then I got inside and I was tested to actually be the co host from the left on Crossfire, which was by far the biggest debate show on TV when I was co hosting a million viewers. What I learned was there's many factors. I mean, the only reason they even tested me for the job, because, you know, there is an unwritten rule that if you're on the left, you can't represent the American left on TV every night. FAIR had sparked a huge mobilization that involved unions and environmental groups and feminist groups when Michael Kinsley left that chair. Kinsley had represented the left on Crossfire for six years. And when he left, he was asked by a reporter to describe his own politics. And he said, well, I'm a wishy-washy moderate. It was only because there had been a mobilization. I can remember letters from union presidents saying, we want someone on the air who really represents us and our members. So I got in there and I realized that, boy, it it made the job of producers at CNN a lot easier if they had a co-host who was really on the left. Because I remember once our topic was the death penalty and I got a call from a producer who said, I assume you're against the death penalty. And and she said something like, well, you know, it wasn't always easy to pick out topics because we weren't sure where Michael Kinsley would be. So it was an experience. I think there's a legacy of McCarthyism there. The executives in cable news, they're open to people from the ultra right. Patrick Buchanan's an American firster. It's second nature to them to get more of the Patrick Buchanan's and the Hannity's and the Sununu's and Novak's and – But to get someone who's actually a reasonable, responsible progressive who allies with these progressive social movements like labor and environment and consumer rights and feminism, that's almost subversive to them. I know when I was tested to be the permanent co-host for Crossfire, I did get in the finals. An executive made it clear to me he was worried that I would criticize the sponsors. It couldn't have been any clearer And while I was willing to say, look, I won't necessarily go out of my way to attack each night's sponsor when corporations are deserving of criticism, that's what people on the left do. So there's a bunch of factors. Legacy of McCarthyism is one. Fear of sponsor flight is another. And frankly, the executives in cable news in Georgetown at these parties, they don't hang out with progressives. It's a GE to GM spectrum in the Beltway, and that's all they want to put on TV. Jeff, you write that genuflecting to the right was the natural bent of every cable news executive I ever met. A little outside your cable news experience, you tell a story about being given an insider tour of ABC's Nightline by one of the show's top executives. Your experience, you write, sheds light on the lingering influence of McCarthyism, which you just mentioned. Right. In my meeting with ABC's Nightline, I said, you know, you seem to have this prerequisite that you can't have – Someone discussed foreign policy unless they were in the high levels of the foreign policy establishment. And I said if that's the case, you know, there are former CIA officers like John Stockwell who are now on the other side. There's people like Daniel Ellsberg and then what I hear from the executives, well,
8: uh,
7: Dan Ellsberg, I, I respect his bravery but he seems like a little bit of an extremist to me. And I've never gotten that out of my mind. I was there with a colleague from FAIR. And I mean, remember, this is a show that FAIR had just shown in the previous like 40 months. They'd had Buchanan, Falwell, Abrams, Abrams, Alexander they right. They had all these right-wing extremists like dozens and dozens of times. So, yeah, there's just this feeling in, among the, quote, corporate liberals or corporate media. No extremists to the right. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was so clear that their idea of an extremist is responsible, progressive critic of the establishment.
6: Well, segueing from that, you appeared for several years on the Fox Network on a show called Fox News Watch. Now, tell us a little bit about that.
7: Yeah, News Watch. And Steve Rendell was a guest at the beginning on that that panel. He was a panelist. Uh, Fox News Watch couldn't be more Opposite what Fox News normally is. In fact, I'd say it's one of the smarter and more balanced programs on cable news, especially in the years I was there. You know, that may be a high jump over a low hurdle to say anything positive about the industry of cable news. I was on a weekend. I was able to criticize Murdoch. I was able to criticize Fox News. It was a very unusual setting. It's the only reason I lasted for years. I mean, when I went over there, obviously, having come from fair, I wasn't naive about Fox News. I mean, I knew that the news chairman, the first chairman of Fox News and current one is Roger Ailes, who was the executive producer of Rush Limbaugh's TV show, a Republican operative. I knew that the first news anchor for Fox News was Tony Snow. He was the substitute host for Limbaugh on radio and a Republican operative. What I didn't know until I'd been there a few years is that these guys were sort of moderates. At Fox News, you know, you learned a lot by being in the green room and on the inside. And, you know, you'd see something on TV and you're there with with Fox News contributors and staffers and and you see a report that's completely biased. And someone in the green room will say, wow, that was real fair and balanced. And everyone laughs. They know it's a joke. It was very interesting to be on the inside there. One of the top executives of Fox News says, you know, the best host we have on Fox News, it's Alan Combs. Because he knows what his job is and he does it, which is to make Sean Hannity look good. Now, that's a gem. You could only surmise that's the way they, they put the show together, but when you're on the inside, you actually pick up that scuttlebutt. Ooh, you win, it's your show now,
8: so what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in, how many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch we thought this was low, well, it's bad, getting worse. Where all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows. Where all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw. They got this and that. Testing, one, two, man, what you're going to do? Bad news, news, got too much to lose. Give me some truth now. are we on? Get
1: do you, paid you paid find that opinion leaders are influenced two, by what you do? I, I know that they are because we see with air America. We've always seen that with Air America. We're so glad you're part of that Air America program now, but what, what we've noticed is that opinion leaders uh, are, are very conscious of what goes on in this citizens' media setting. Do you find that be true?
2: Well, I, I, you know, it's funny. When we first started, it was harder booking guests. And the more guests that we got, uh, the more uh, guests we can get easier. And Jill's done a terrific job with that. And what winds up happening when you get the guests on is not only do you ask them questions, but you wind up interacting with them. And eventually they start to think, hey, you know what? Those are good questions. Why aren't we asking those questions at Newsweek or New York Times or ABC News? And uh, I think eventually, I hope we've had a little bit of success in planting some thoughts in their heads, and, and we've seen some great results. I, I'm not yeah. saying it's completely or even partly our doing, but at least the, we've seen the results. I think you are being
1: too modest. I think I think you have had an impact. I mean, well, I, I think you've had an impact with journalists. I think people, I, I think when the three of you go on the air and you say this is important, and mainstream uh, journalism chooses to ignore it, I, the, the thing that you do that I think is so effective... Is you beat the hell out of them with it, and they have to they have to pay attention to you. And I've seen I, I've actually seen results of that. Well, Mike, that's uh, nice of you to
3: say. And we maybe uh, you know when we talk, we have a lot of journalists on the show, and, and I'd like to think in the, uh, that, that that maybe we've had some influence there. Uh, as far as influence with policymakers, uh, I think it's a little pie in the sky to suggest. I want to see so much more responsiveness uh, inside the Democratic Party to. All the blogs, to the blogosphere, to, to, to Air America, to even to Sirius Satellite Radio where we were before. And I, it's thus far, uh, the Democratic Party is so timid, so afraid, I- I'm simply not seeing it. Sure, it's better than it was three years ago, but I'd say it's moving at a snail's pace.
2: Mike, I want to give you an interesting example from the journalist's point of view. Uh, Alan Sloan of Newsweek was on our show, and we mm-hmm. talked during uh, when Bush was trying to uh, privatize Social Security, and we had a conversation with him about how actually uh, the government was stealing from Social Security surplus every year. And the very next week, Alan wrote a piece on exactly that topic. Mm-hmm and i thought to myself well if if we influence anything at all i think we might influence this piece yeah and so i i cut it out and i saved it cuz i thought this might be the one time we really got somebody to write something about it, and I felt pretty good about that. That
3: also makes you the first American in the history of the
1: country to cut out and save a piece on Social Security. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice job. Well, you know, I got to tell you, I, I got to tell you that this is my theory of it, and I hope there's some truth to this. And that is that there's not going to be any one event that pushes the progressive voice back into mainstream. I, I think it's going to be a collection of, of of individuals such as yourself that where individual events take place all over this country, and all of a sudden there's a it And all of a sudden, the American public, that, by God, you just want to shake them sometimes and say, what in the hell does it take to get through, that they do get it. And so that's why what you have been doing for so long, even even when it seemed like it was impossible, has paid off and will continue to pay off. And I just have to tell you, I, I honestly believe, I told you before this interview started, I think you're three of the most talented people in progressive radio right now. So we're just so glad to have you with Air America.
4: Well, thank you so much. And you spoke earlier about you know making a difference and, and trying to change policy and, and affect affect what people write and all that. And I just I think that'll come more when there's a, a greater relationship between the radio side and the blogosphere as well. And you know we talk a lot about when we have senators and congressmen on to approach the blogosphere and 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 say you know we want to get questions from you and questions from people that you you know that comment on your site. So you guys can have a forum to ask questions while they're on our show and kind of create this marriage, which I think will have a – a greater presence to those that do um, that do handle policy in this country.
2: And, and Mike, I think you're right. I mean, all of this builds on top of one another. A friend of mine uh, that I used to uh, a room he used to be my roommate. You would say after working out every day, "Hey, we build this temple one brick at a time, mm-hmm. right?" And yeah. and that's what you know. You guys uh, at Ring of Fire, at Air America, us the Young Turks, the blogs. We're all building this temple one brick at a time, and, and I think we're getting there. I, I'm beginning to see the temple.
5: Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. By now you should have somehow realized what you got to do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. Backbeat, the word is on the street that the fire in your heart is out. Sure, you have heard it all before but you never really had it out I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now
9: Google is so well known it's not just a company name it's become a verb you don't just look someone up on the internet you google them And with their unofficial slogan, Don't Be Evil, they've maintained a pretty good public face. But that facade has begun to crack, as is documented in an article that's right now on Mother Jones' homepage. MotherJones.com is Google Evil. Author is Adam Penenberg, and he joins me now on the line. Hi, Adam. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Google's very much in the news now because of the new acquisition of YouTube, and as we hear you tell the tale of, of what it's been up to over the past few years, we can bear in mind that the situation with YouTube may make that worse, make it better?
5: I'm not sure. I think when the reasons for buying YouTube are very complex. I think part of it is that they don't have much of a video presence on the web. Their Google Video uh, foray has been kind of a failure for them. And I think what they're trying to do is uh, aggregate a number of users, and YouTube has many of them. Uh, and so I think what they'll probably end up doing um, is to target ads toward uh, the users of YouTube, hopefully in a, in a subtle way. But, you know, the way that Google works is that to target ads, they have to know something about you, and I think that's where the problem comes in.
9: In fact, is there any way for you to quantify in an understandable way just how much information about its users uh, Google has aggregated over the years?
5: For example, the company told me that in its nine years of existence, it has never erased or deleted uh, a search query. So think about it. Maybe you've come home late at night, had a couple shots of tequila, decided to experiment a little bit. Um, Google knows what you search for. And not only that, but when you search for something on Google, the company if it wanted, would be able to to cross-reference all your personal data that it has collected over the years. For example, what you searched for, your IP address. Uh, If you've ever signed up for something with Google and used your name and credit card number, they could, if they wanted, cross-reference all that uh, material and put it into a very detailed dossier on you and realize that if you've spent years using Google, maybe Gmail you've used, it has copies of every single email you've ever sent or received. If you use any of their services like AdWords or AdSense, Uh, It has your credit information on file, and it knows a lot about you and your website. And the problem is that all this information would be really irresistible for law enforcement.
9: With bearing that in mind, this sounds to me like a potential for abuse, but Google already has something of a track record of making decisions that aren't necessarily in the consumer's favor. What are some of those?
5: Well, you know, realize that Google is a public company and that it's beholden to its shareholders by law. And so when it comes down to doing the right thing or doing what is uh, best Economically, it will always choose what's better for business, and it's done that in China, for example, um, it uh, created a, a search engine for use in the Chinese market that is censoring results so even though this is a company that exists by collecting information and and uh, distributing it to people worldwide, uh, they are willing to censor it to enter the Chinese market because well, there's money to be made uh in Brazil it just recently turned over user data for one of its uh, affiliate companies Orkut uh because the government was investigating whether people had uh posted what they viewed as being homophobic or racist material which is a, which is regarded as hate speech in Brazil and so Google is willing to um, cooperate with all types of subpoenas including from American law enforcement and so you have to ask yourself can you trust Google and if you can Um, can you only trust Google insofar as you can trust the Bush administration?
9: All right, that's scary. (laughs) Investigative journalist Adam Penneberg is talking to me about his new article, Is Google Evil? It's online at motherjones.com. He's an assistant journalism professor at NYU. Well, let's talk about uh, the appearance of Google to other people. They did have a very good public face for a while. And then you mentioned at the very beginning of your article, a case where someone essentially used Google's own tools against it to investigate Google people. And they pretty much blew a fuse on that one.
5: Yes, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but a reporter from CNET, a woman named Eleanor Mills, did a story where, where she just used Google to search uh, Google CEO Eric Schmidt, and she just published the results. And, you know, she found out that Schmidt lived in a, you know with his wife in Atherton, California, and it's worth about $1.5 billion. You know, he had sold some stock. He was an amateur pilot. Uh, he'd been to the Burning Man Festival, like many of us. And so Google uh, reacted rather strangely and blacklisted CNET, claiming that uh, that this was a security breach. That I guess Eric Schmidt is so important that by having this kind of uh, really you know general information published in an article was somehow attacking his privacy. And of course, this is pretty ironic given how Google earns its living.
9: When you try to approach Google to get this story, you got a taste of how they treat journalists. That was kind of illuminating.
5: Well, I mean, I dealt with Google in the past, and uh, they know my work, you know, and I certainly, you know, respect the the company. I mean, the company has become an Internet darling for a reason, and I mean, it does have a wonderful search engine. I mean, I'm not criticizing them for that. Uh, But my problem is that, uh, you know, that they are a, I I view that they are a threat to privacy, and uh, uh, one thing they tried to have me do was to submit my questions in advance, detailed questions in advance, and I told them I wouldn't do that. Now, some journalists do it, and this is true, and they mention that the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times submit questions in advance. Why wouldn't I? And I actually did check with the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, and they, lo and behold, they do uh, submit questions to Google in advance, and they don't really have a problem with it, which I thought was kind of curious. And I think what it comes down to is the power of the company. If you're reporting on Google, I mean, you really have to let them write the rules. Uh, Now, ultimately, uh, the publicist kindly, I think, uh, allowed me to interview uh, the associate counsel for Google, Nicole Wong, and and I didn't have to submit my questions in advance. Um, But, you know, the expectation was that I would, and we had a very long discussion over this, uh, spanning many days and many emails, uh, me trying to, um, you know, question their associate counsel without submitting questions in advance and them insisting on it.
9: And how does a wise consumer approach Google, then?
5: Well, I think one should be aware of it. I mean all I'm asking is that people are more aware of how much of their personal information is sitting on Google servers right now. If you're a user of Gmail and you're comfortable with the idea that uh Google can scan every single email that you receive and you send out and that you have no problem with this, uh that's fine. But you should be aware of it. And I don't think most people are. I think that Google has this patina of goodness that's that persists to this day and people should realize that it's just another company. And it's a company that, although it has wonderful products, it makes its money by trafficking in your personal information so that it can target ads to you. And the more it knows about you, the more effectively it will target ads to you. If you know that, uh, maybe it will change uh, how much you'll use their search, and maybe it'll change how much you use their other services, or maybe not. That's your choice but you should be aware of it. It's
9: going to be an informed choice. Adam Penenberg, thank you so much. Thank you. Adam Penenberg is the author of Tragic Indifference, the story of the Ford Firestone consumer scandal that is now being developed for The screen. He's also written for Forbes, Slate, Wired, and, of course, MotherJones.com.
1: An honor to welcome our next guest on Ring of Fire. Over the past fifty years, Dan Rather has covered virtually every major event in the world. First as a reporter, and then in his twenty-four year tenure, as anchor of the CBS Evening News. Now he's embarking on a new phase of his career, the weekly news show, Dan Rather Reports, premiering next month on HD Net. Mr. Rather, Helen Thomas and Bill Moyers both told Bobby Kennedy and I in separate interviews that investigative news, investigative journalism has seen its best day. As a matter of fact, if I were to really take what Bill had to say, he almost took it to the point where investigative journalism is dead in America. What do you think about that?
8: I don't agree. I have great respect uh, for both of them, but I don't agree with that, that it's dead. I think it's ailing and has been for some little while. But uh, with things such as the new program I'm starting, Dan Rather, reports on HDNet, we intend to make part of our core, part of our program, id, if you will, investigative reports. And I see from time to time in various places, including uh, some of the better-known electronic networks, such as uh, CNN and, for that matter, MSNBC, uh, some investigative reports that I say to myself, hmm, that's pretty good stuff. Uh, I have high hopes for Ted Koppel, who's a correspondent, and Tom Batag, who's the executive producer of their new efforts on the Discovery Channel. I think we'll see some investigative reporting out of them. So some, I, I think that it's ailing to the point that it may be on life support, but I think investigative <laughs> reporting is still alive but not too well.
1: Well, do you think maybe we're just moving through some dark ages? I guess that's the way I'd like to think about it. I would like to think that there's still room for Dan Rathers and Ed Morrow's and Upton Sinclair's. You're
8: optimistic. I am optimistic, but I'm an optimist by by nature and by experience. But I have no illusions. Investigative reporting is the hardest kind of reporting to do. That's number one. It's just difficult to do. One of the things that makes it difficult is that you sometimes start out investigating something, and when you get to the end of the alley, what you thought was going to be there isn't there. Now, that plays into point number two, which is to find owners, publishers, leaders of news operations, particularly news operations, major news operations, That are prepared to commit to investigative reporting is increasingly rare. I think this is what has happened at what I would call the old over the airways networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS, while they still do some investigative reports, and there are some very good investigative reporting done there from time to time, that overall and in the main, the imperative to get first demographics, which are more important than ratings now, but a combination of trying to get Driven to get, forced to get, demanded of them to produce ever increasingly good demographics, that is, the age groups that advertisers want to buy, and ratings, gives the owners and operators of such operations great pause. Now, perhaps the more important reason that they're given pause is that increasingly the major news outlets are 80 85% owned by huge, really giant international conglomerates that have a lot of interests that come in conflict with the best kind of investigative reporting. For example, they need legislative and regulatory help and relief in Washington. And on the one hand, they have their lobbyists uh, trying to get that accomplished in Washington, and on the other hand, good investigative reporters uh, look into such things as how lobby money influences such decisions. So those things come in conflict, and that together with the natural inclination by the people who own these major outlets, not to want controversy of any kind, they get nervous to say the least when really good investigative reporters are turned loose, and they also worry about the cost of it. So you put all that together, and it should surprise no one that really hard-edged investigative reporting uh, is in the shape of sin. Wrapped in white sheets like an angel.
3: The Way to Win is a book by longtime political reporter Mark Halperin, who runs the ABC political division, uh, and also, I believe, John Harris, who's uh, writes for the Associated Press. Uh, no, sorry, writes for the uh, he's the national politics editor of the Washington Post. Excuse me. Um, and according to Drudge uh, last week, uh, their book, which comes out, I think, in November, uh, they have a f- extended fifteen page homage to the glories of the Drudge Report. They report, quoting Drudge, assuming this is in the book, assuming Drudge is correct here, but since it's about Drudge, I'm guessing it is, quote, these guys, these uh, these impartial political observers, the note is about – a uh, the note on abcnews.com is about a – it's like a, it takes you an hour and a half to get through it. It is everything in politics happening that day, mainly in Washington but across the country, and it is uh, read by many power brokers. Matt Drudge is the gatekeeper. They write in their book. He is the Walter Cronkite of his era. Oh, God. there's ellipses in there. There's dot dot dot. So you know, I mean, maybe it's in there. Mart- Matt Drudge is the gatekeeper, and he likes to think he is the Walter Cronkite of his era. What did they just call him a gatekeeper? <laughs> gatekeeper.
2: Oh, I see. But in the those here, beasts.
3: Here's what else they write. In the fragmented remote control, click on this, did you hear, political media world which we live, reverend, uh, uh, revered uncle, excuse me, reverend, revered uncle Walter has been replaced by odd nephew Matt. Matt Drudge rules our world, they write. With the exception of the Associated Press, there is no outlet other than the Drudge Report whose dispatches... This is the important part. Other than the AP, no outlet other than Drudge, whose dispatches instantly can command the attention and energies of the most established newspapers and television newscasts. Matt Drudge counts as one of the most important entrepreneurs of his era, one of the biggest success stories of his generation. Last quote here. So many media elites, again, this is the earlier paragraph in this, the two relevant ones, most relevant. So many media elites check the Drudge Report consistently that a reporter is aware his bosses, his competitors, his sources, his friends on Wall Street, lobbyists, White House officials, congressional aides, cousins, and everyone who is anyone has seen it too.
2: Okay, excuse me while I vomit. First of all, this is exactly what's wrong with the media. And I got to you know, and you get another chance to to hurl here because I want to pull, you know, something that I've been saying too often on this show, but go ahead you tell me what I told you. I mean, these guys pay way too much attention to Drudge and and Fox News Channel, and and those guys drive the conversation.
3: You know, and I I haven't said this enough. I said it years ago, but, you know, especially leading up to 2004. I think the Drudge Report, you know, your argument, and it's a good one, and it's one I share to, to a large extent about how much Fox influences what's reported. Um, and Fox unquestionably influences CNN and MSNBC. To argue otherwise is, is is simply foolish, and therefore the broadcast networks to some extent too. But I think for newspapers and, and also for cable news and also for CNN and MSNBC and for Fox, I think Drudge drives this – more than Fox News does. And Fox News is driven by Drudge. Fox News probably pays more attention to Drudge than anything. I mean, I heard it from my friends who worked on Capitol Hill. I Just seeing it in print was a shocking reminder. Uh, This guy, the the Swift Boat story on John Kerry, was nowhere for weeks except on Drudge. And Drudge kept going and and kept going and kept going. Right, well, it started on Drudge before anywhere, and then Fox News ran with it. But, I mean... Fox News Channel, you don't – when you turn it on, you don't know what you're going to get because they could be talking nonsense. Sometimes they actually cover actual news. Sometimes they'll cover a, 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 you know, a, a police chase in California or some story that's not political. They do it all the time. Drudge is all politics, and he dictates what pe- – he dictates what the people who run the media think people are talking about. Uh, and he so is
2: it's, – It's time to get blood. It's time he
3: to get blood. An, and he is an unabashed – Conservative with uh, with conservative ideas and his and and the way he spins stories and the stories he brings you uh, are, are unquestionably far to the right of almost uh, of mainstream America. There's uh,
2: no okay. question about. That. No, it's time to get much more blunt. Okay, you people in the mainstream media, you people you call yourselves reporters, journalists, you idiots. He's enormously conservative. He's clearly biasing all the stories to influence you in that direction, and. It, and you still haven't figured it out. Mark Halpern and this guy, they just, they call him the Walter Cronkite of his generation. You morons. He's been influencing you in that direction for years now, and you still haven't caught on. Like, like little mouses. Oh, my boss is checking in. Everybody I know, my cousin's checking in. I'm going to check in. Oh, what is Drudge saying? Okay, let's report what Drudge is
3: saying. All right, <laughs> All right settle
2: down. No, okay. I, I mean, come on. This is what's driving the country into the ground, and this Matt Drudge is a radical. Didn't you just hear him? He's calling young boys who are being you know, uh, is sought after by this 52-year-old congress. He's calling beasts. He's calling the, He's saying that they're egging the congressman on. This guy's an absolute radical, let alone everything else he's ever said. And everybody in the mainstream media, <laughs> what's Drudge saying? I hear everybody's talking about Drudge. Let me write exactly what Drudge wrote.
3: Of course, it's not everybody in the mainstream media, fortunately. And newspapers seem to be paying less and less attention. And you can go to Drudge at various times during the day, and you will not see the main story it might have nothing to do with politics, or there won't be an enormous spin in a given moment. But spend a week looking at it. And the spin is obvious and very clear. And for big stories, I'm telling you, Matt Drudge cost John Kerry the election. Matt Drudge. And so, I mean, when they talk about power, you want to write a book about power figures in Washington. It's relevant to talk about Matt Drudge, but not in the way that this is acceptable. It is completely unacceptable. And he talked about those Swift Boat guys, of course, without Ever talking about their funding or who they were in any way, or the fact that they were lying, or the fact that they I made mean, it
2: obvious up. facts about well how they made it up, and he didn't put that in, so the <laughs> mainstream media didn't cover that because Drudge wasn't covering it.
3: No, so all, and, it was and of too course, late. And all they wanted, all the Bush campaign wanted, as we pointed out many times before, was not so much to have people believe the Swift Boat guys, but to put an ounce of doubt. In John Kerry's Vietnam service, to say, yeah, he was a Vietnam hero, uh, but I hear he might have embellished his record. some. that's all they wanted. Once they had that point made, driven by Drudge, it was over, and John Kerry had lost the ability to claim his Vietnam service as a uh, as a point on his resume, which would help get him elected president.
9: You
2: know, it's like I, I me I guess I was a real naive kid, and I, I mean, all the way up till really, really recently, and I think I still am to some degree because. I thought the people on TV were smart. You know, I don't mean like the actors and the celebrities. I'm not like, oh, Ronald Reagan, I guess I'll vote for him because he's a celebrity. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's the Terminator, I'll vote for him. I don't mean it in that way. I mean that the the people presenting the news, the reporters, that they made a living out of this. I, I was led with the – I had the mistaken impression that they were bright people, that they cared, they were trying to do their job right, and that, you know, they were overall doing – they were doing the right thing, right? It turns out – you know, foolish me. Now, it turns out that they're generally dumb. Okay, they're, 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 they're what they do is they follow trends and they don't know how to ask follow up questions. They don't know how to ask the right questions. All they do is, oh, what's he doing? What's he doing? What's she doing? Okay, whatever anybody else is doing, that's what I'm going to do. And Matt Drudge, apparently, he's the Walter Cronkite. I'm going to do what he does. And you know, we've been breaking all these Chris Matthews, Tim Russert, etc. All these clips down over the last three, four years. And, all, and you the one thing that comes across crystal clear by the end of it is, these guys are not bright. They just, you know, you, somebody says something outrageous. They don't think to ask the obvious follow-up question. What does my producer say? What does the talking point say today? What did Drudge say today? Well, I'll ask, I'll ask that question. Wolf Blitzer, please. Please, N-word, please. Wolf Blitzer, please. Okay. Oh, God. Now, luckily... Some of these people have pulled their... Uh, Matt Drudge rules our world. Yeah, that, but there it is. There it is. Thank you, Ben. Luckily, some pe- of oh, these guys, because we've yelled at them long enough, and I know we were supposed to... We were shrill. We weren't supposed to yell at them in the first place. Oh, I, that's what the Democrats' problem is. Oh, no, no, no. We, let's be nice to the media. Republicans kicked their ass, and then they wind up getting positive coverage. It's like they never dated. But anyway, uh, that's a whole nother spiel we'll get into later. For the moment being... Um, Finally, they've, we've pulled a, their collective heads out of their asses to some degree, and now finally they realize, some of them realize, a lot of them don't, that, hey, maybe there's a world outside of Matt Drudge and Fox <laughs> News Channel. And I'll tell you, the people, and I'm saying this not because I'm on it, I, you know, forget my side of it at all, because I got other issues with that, <laughs> but let me just say, one site that has been more helpful than anything else and I love the blogs and I think the blogs have done a great job the Daily Coasts, Crooks and Liars, Atrios, uh, D, all those guys have done a great job but honestly the site that has had a profound effect is Huffington Post and the reason for that is because these idiots in the press they read it. You know, they, Maybe Daily Coast is a little confusing to them maybe some of the other sites are uh, you know too smart I don't know what it is but uh, HuffingtonPost.com has celebrities uh, that has some Newsweek guys on it. It has politicians on it. So now these guys that write stuff like this, they go, all right, let me check the drudge Report, and let me check the Huffington Post. And you know what?
3: That's an enormous difference maker. Uh, that's an enormous difference maker, and the people who benefit from that are consumers of news. This here
1: is- way back in the 70s, some conservatives said we have to change the landscape of politics. And the way to do that is that we, first of all, have to gain control of the media. I don't know if it's intentional, but that's certainly that's the way it, it, it ended up. Back in, 80, in 1981, you had 50 outlets for uh, television, radio, books. Now, what we're down to five. How does journalism, how does that fourth estate ever prosper when you have such tight control over what journalism is supposed to look like?
8: Well, the short answer, and I think the accurate answer, and by any objective analysis, the uh, straight answer is that it can't prosper very well, and that's one of the problems. Now, I want to uh, make a couple of subsidiary points that you said conservatives. These were self-described conservatives, and as we all know, that sometimes self-described conservatives, along with self-described liberals, are not that at all.
1: Yeah, I agree with
8: that. That what did happen was some people with A highly partisan political agenda and or extreme by most standards ideological agendas or certainly fervent ideological agendas said we want to forward our agendas and we can't do that with a truly independent press. And so what we need to do, said they, is get control of the media and manipulate the media as much as possible. Nothing new about this. One could make the argument that some self described liberals have been trying to do it for some little while before that, and it's certainly not an indictable offense. This is America, and you can do anything you're big enough to do as long as it's legal.
1: But you know what? It's almost as if what they were trying to sell to the American public was counterintuitive. They wanted to deregulate issues like the environment. They wanted tax revamps to do with inheritance tax, corporate tax, capital gains tax. They wanted to change the civil justice process. And really, it seemed to me the only way they could get there was to have a couple of things happen, the first of which would have been the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine. I mean, that, isn't that kind of where they had their first big victory?
8: I, mean, I would say the answer to that is yes.
1: And then I, I look. the next step would be, I, I still to this day don't understand, maybe you can give me a little better insight on this, is what happened in 1996 when Clinton was convinced of the idea that it was, that it was good to, to do away with this protection of an expanded monopoly. His support of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, it seemed to me it was contrary to certainly his best interest and in the in the best interest of a free press.
8: Well, I have no doubt that President Clinton was doing what he thought was in the best interest of the country, and uh, in the same way, I have no doubt that Ronald Reagan thought he was doing what he did during the 80s in the best interest of the country. But to answer your question, that the Clinton decision, President Clinton's decision at that time in the mid-90s put us much further along the road to where we are now. And where we are now is that we have a press, and I do not exclude myself from this criticism, that has to no small degree lost its way, lost its spine, and that's the reason I say that the press, including myself, uh, needs a spine transplant. I've
1: yes. never, I've never thought of you as not having a spine. I remember the criticism that you were under, and even in Nam, when you were calling it like it was, right along with Cronkite. I, I have a hard time saying that that was a lack of a spine. And I, let me defend you on that because I, I just don't ever remember that happening.
8: Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, but uh, you know, I know my flaws and as as well as anyone, and. You know, I've, I have over a lifetime career as a reporter. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do, the only thing I dreamed of doing. Uh, that I, you know, I've done my best, uh, to be truly independent. See myself and, and try to, try to deliver as a truly independent journalist. And that will get you over the years a lot of enemies and some of those enemies are going to be very powerful and any reporter or any news organization that attempts to be genuinely independent and fly under the colors of independence is going to have trouble sooner or later from the right or the left on the political spectrum and probably both and this is something i think is very important for regular americans to understand that there is a school of thought in politics now and because the republicans are in power it's much easier to identify them with it but I will say that the Democrats have done some of the same, and that is to do the following. To start from the baseline that they don't really want independent, truly independent reporting. People with a partisan political agenda and who feel very strongly about it, and the same with those who are ideologically motivated in one way or the other, take the attitude that we don't want independent reporting. What we want is reporting that agrees with our point of view.
1: Mm,
8: And furthermore, if a reporter or a news organization declines, refuses to do that, we will launch a massive campaign to discredit them. Mm-hmm. And we will we will hang a sign around their neck, a sign that is derogatory, in their view, a sign such as anti-patriotic or doesn't love the country.
1: Mm-hmm. The Dixie Chick Syndrome.
8: That's it. And to smear you, and this has had a, uh, I'm sorry to say, this has had a deep and abiding effect on American journalism. Ed Murrell faced the same thing in his day, and one reason that Murrell is such an icon with me and uh, any number of other journalists, is that, first of all, he recognized the problem, and he fought the good fight. He didn't always win. In the end, he was, in effect, forced out of journalism on this very point. Now, as a close student of Ed Murrow and his history, you know, he had his bad days. He he made his mistakes, and he wasn't always perfect on that score but the point is that in his time which was basically the nineteen fifties in terms of television he was doing some of this in radio before in his time he recognized the danger of self-censorship of saying you know i know what the tough question is to ask but if i ask that question i'm gonna have nothing but hell for weeks months and maybe years it could cost my career or if i launch this investigative report the same thing is going to happen to me he recognized the danger and he was human he made his mistakes But what he did was suck it up and go ahead and do magnificent work in spite of that. The ideal that Ed Murrow pushed, which is fiercely independent when necessary journalism, cannot be taken for granted, and it has to be passed from one generation of journalists to another. And more importantly, it has to be passed in the public mind as something important. It's something important Mm -hmm. for the public. And yes, without being preachy about it, something important for American democracy. Right. right. Uh, to have this inculcated in the public mind of, look, they're not doing this because they want to show off. They're not doing this because they want to forward their careers. That While that may happen, overall in the main... They're doing this because they love their country, and this is something very important for the country.
1: Well, I say on one hand that there has been uh, an obvious shift in conglomerate media. I mean, as I say, we have NBC, ABC, Viacom, AOL, Time Warner, that basically go unchallenged in whatever they choose the message should be. But the market sometimes takes care of itself. There's a hole in the market right now when I look at the fact that 40% of the American public don't trust the media. So out of there, there's this rise of what I call the citizen media—that That is a good opportunity for Americans,
8: isn't it? Well, it is a good opportunity for Americans. Having said that, I'm a believer in capitalism. I'm a believer in the incentive system. I've worked all of my career in commercial broadcasting. While there's certainly a place for, and never more has it been needed than now, for citizen journalism as you define it, but I consider citizen journalism journalism as a whole. I'm a journalist and and proud of it and determined to be as good a journalist as I can be. But I'm an American. I want the best for my country. And being a good journalist to me is being a good citizen. This flows into a whole other area that, you know, we're a country at war. And I think some journalists, including myself at times, get a bit confused about what a patriotic journalist should do during war. And those who want the news reported their way, and if you don't report it their way, they'll smear you up in some way, equate uh, patriotism with falling right in behind with whatever the message is of the government in power. When we know, when we stop to think about it, that the patriotic journalist is the one who will say, yes, I know what the tough question is, and you know what, whatever the price to me is, I'm going to ask that question, I'm going to keep on asking that question, and I'm going to follow up if somebody else has the guts to ask the right question. And yes, my job as a patriotic Journalists is to do investigative reporting and to perform that very vital job of providing a check and balance on power, which is, after all, part of the bedrock of our American system.
1: Dan Rather, thank you for staying in the fight. I'm so glad you're you're back in this game, or staying in the game and continuing the fight. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful thing for all of us.
0: Back to the mailbag. You have helped me be a better American. Your podcast is one of the few places that I feel I can get the truth without the corporate powers deciding what is reported. I firmly believe that this is the future of journalism. It has given me information that has forced me to become involved. I now attend protests and rallies for causes that I believe in. Just wanted to say, if you think that your show fails to make a difference, you're mistaken it has made a huge difference in my life keep up the great work and that's from tom so i just got back to tom tonight and you know i mean first of all i'm in utterly flattered and astonished at at that email um and and extremely proud of uh of the apparent effect i've i've had on this uh very kind fellow who's written in so basically, the way I responded to him was by saying that uh, you you really never know how you're going to affect other people. You never know what kind of actions you're going to take that are going to either inspire others to do good or evil uh, in in any way. But generally speaking, good deeds breed good results. And so take this as a you know vote of confidence in yourself to do good things and because you never know you know if you never see the tangible results of your good actions uh, it doesn't mean that um you're not having a you know a potentially huge impact on the world uh, for the positive so i find that incredibly encouraging i don't know about you But I would also like to use this email as a springboard to another question that I'm just curious about, and that is how you got involved with politics, uh, to whatever extent you are. You know, apparently Tom has started going to political rallies and protests, which is incredibly exciting. Uh, To be frank, uh, I believe the last uh, political rally that I went to was when uh, Barbara Boxer won uh, her first Senate race. You know, I think I was six or something. Um, but I remember it. I take that to heart. Uh, sloganeering works. And, and those signs she has, they're uh, yellow with uh, boxes around the X in her name. Boxer, Barbara Boxer. And I still remember it, so uh, keep that in mind. Those, those political signs work. But, um, yeah, I just haven't had time to, uh, to make it out to any since then. And now Tom is uh, off and running. So now I'm curious, what do you do in politics, even if it's just keeping your ears opened? How did you get started? I mean, I have a very specific story about how I got started that I don't recall if I've told before. Uh, perhaps I will. But I would like to hear your stories. You know, how did you get started doing whatever you're doing? How did you get interested in all this craziness? So uh, I'll open up a new uh, thread on the message board. You can find the whole forum for the Best of Left community at botlcommunity.com, or you can uh, email direct to hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or call in your comment to the voicemail line 206-984-3907. All of those ways will get your message across, and maybe we'll talk about this on a future show, because uh, this is something I'm, I've always been really interested in. Just, uh, I think maybe learning how we all got involved might help us uh, learn how to get more people involved in the future. Of course, uh, maybe not, but that's always a possibility. So, until uh, tomorrow or the next uh, time you hear from me, have a good one, everybody.
4: The light, up on a picture that wasn't right, pitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you want to meet, a dying man in a living room, Who shadow bases the floor. will take you out